Hi everyone. I want to take a quick minute before we get started to tell you about a really cool podcast I found. The Lone Gunman is a really interesting podcast examining the testimony and evidence surrounding the assassination of JFK. If you're into history, mystery, and maybe a little conspiracy theory, go check out the Lone Gunman podcast. Definitely worth a listen. Between the years of 1911 and 1919, New Orleans was the home of a series of murders that terrorized the community. Victims were chosen with no clear connection to one another and murdered in their beds. The killer broke into homes at night and killed his victims with an axe before they even had a chance to defend themselves. While it is possible that some of the deaths attributed to the Axemen may have been copycat killers, they followed a similar vein and tapped into the hysteria that was already prevalent. At the end of his spree, the Axeman of New Orleans would have a total of seven deaths and an additional seven near-fatal attacks attributed to him. This is his story. While the official Axeman murders did not occur until 1918, there are similarities with a string of murders that occurred in the years of 1910 and 1912. There is skepticism regarding the connection between these early victims and the latter, but the similar fashion in which the murders were carried out were so similar that even police at the time felt that the Axemen could have been active as early as 1910. Almost all of the Axemen victims were of Italian descent and many were grocers. The first of these victims was a man named Crudy. On the evening of August 18, 1910, John Crudy was in bed, sleeping next to his wife. Late in the night, an intruder broke through the back door. He snuck into the children's room and chloroformed them to ensure that they would not wake during his attack on their parents. He then crept into the master bedroom and crushed Crudy's skull with a single blow from a meat cleaver. Mrs. Crudy woke in terror and wept at the sight of the cleaver stuck in her suddenly dead husband's skull. The intruder thrust a revolver into her face and demanded money. With shaking hands and fearing for her life, Mrs. Crudy handed over $800 in cash that had been hidden in the house. Cash in hand and bloody deed done, the murderer left the new widow in shock to smoke a cigarette on the sidewalk and wait for his ride to come pick him up. The next victims were the Rossettis. In similar fashion, an intruder broke into their home late at night and hacked the sleeping couple to death in their bed. The third attack occurred on May 16, 1912. Mr. and Mrs. Chamber were sleeping in their home in the Lower Ninth Ward. Their home, too, was broken into late at night. A cleaver or an axe was found in the home and the intruder used it to brutally slay the sleeping couple. At the time of the murders, police were uncertain if they were dealing with a serial killer or if perhaps these were murders connected to a mafia group called the Black Hand. It was a relatively small mafia ring, but it was still dangerous. The group had been connected to a series of brutal murders only five years earlier. No suspects were arrested in any of the three killings, and it was not until 1918 that the police would fully realize that they were dealing with a particularly savage serial killer. The first of the official and latter canonical Axeman murders occurred on the night of May 22, 1918. Joseph and Catherine Maggio ran a grocery store and barroom just around the corner from their home. Next door to them lived Joseph's brother, Jake and Andrew. 
the couple lived a tidy and happy life together, and had gone to bed on the 22nd as comfortably as they would have on any other night. This night, however, would be different. Jake and Andrew shared a room in the neighboring apartment to Joseph and Catherine. The wall that connected the two houses was also the wall that divided the two bedrooms. It was through this wall that Jake heard sounds in the pre-dawn hours. He heard groaning coming from the other side. He woke Andrew, and together the brothers went around to the back door of Joseph's home. They found that the back door had had the bottom panel of the door removed, and they suspected a burglar. The two men proceeded cautiously to Joseph and Catherine's room. What they found was a lifeless Catherine, draped over her dying husband. They were lying in a pool of blood on the bed. As Jake and Andrew made the terrible discovery of their brother and sister-in-law, Joseph took his final breaths. The police were notified immediately. During the investigation, it was determined that the couple had been attacked in their sleep. Their throats had been slit. Catherine's was cut so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. As they lay bleeding on the bed, their attacker had taken an axe and smashed both of them in the head. The razor was later found in a neighbor's yard with blood dried on it. In the bathroom, the axe had been left in the tub. It had been hastily washed, though not all of the blood had been scrubbed clean. It appeared that the killer had changed clothes after the attack as a pile of bloodied clothing was found discarded in the second bedroom. Robbery was ruled out because no valuables were taken from the property. All of Catherine's jewelry was still in her jewelry box on the dressing table. Money and other valuables were left in plain sight and untouched by the killer. At first, Jake was arrested on suspicion of the murders, but he was later released as no evidence could be brought against him and his statement could not be broken down under interrogation. With no suspects and no new leads, the case sat open. Then early on the morning of June 27, 1918, another murder would rock the area. Louis Bessemer and his common-law wife, Harriet Lowe, lived in an apartment behind Bessemer's grocery. At 7 a.m., the bakery wagon pulled up, and John Zonka, the driver, approached the store for his morning delivery. This morning was about to prove anything but routine. Zonka discovered Bessemer and Lowe lying in a pool of mingled blood. Bessemer had been savagely hacked with a hatchet. He'd been struck above the right temple. Lowe had suffered a crippling blow below the right ear. Both were unconscious when police arrived on the scene. The pair was rushed to the hospital, and both would survive their attack. Investigation of the premises revealed that, as in the Macchio murders, the intruder had chiseled through the back door and used a weapon found in the home that belonged to the victim. The hatchet was found in the bathroom cleaned and drying. Also, nothing in the house had been stolen and all the valuables were left untouched. When questioned about what happened, Bessemer claimed he'd been sleeping when he was struck in the head. He was not able to give a description of the attacker. Lowe, however, was able to give a statement to the police. She said that her attacker was young and very dark. Her statement led to the arrest of Bessemer's employee, 41-year-old Louis Ubicon. The man had been working at the grocery for less than a week at the time of the attack. Other than his being African-American, nothing connected him to the attack at all. Lowe would later go on to change her story and would even accuse Bessemer as the attacker. 
He would ultimately serve nine months in prison on the charge of murder before being acquitted. The jury on the retrial deliberated a mere 10 minutes before overturning the earlier sentence of life. The reliability of Lowe's statement was called into question as she suffered repeated bouts of unconsciousness. She made wild claims of Bessemer's being a German spy. She accused him of attacking her and even accused Louis Ubicon. She then suffered scandal when Bessemer's legal wife turned up in town after the attack. Lowe was clearly suffering lingering effects from her attack, and her varying accounts of what happened were eventually thrown out. She died on August 5, 1918, two days after surgery to attempt to repair the paralysis to her face from the attack. That same day, Mrs. Schneider, who was eight months pregnant, was attacked in her home. Her husband returned home from work around midnight to find his wife unconscious but still alive. She'd been severely beaten about the head and face. It was later determined that her attacker had used a lamp from a nearby table to strike her repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open, and her face was completely covered in blood when she was found. She was taken to the hospital where her wounds were treated, and she delivered a healthy baby girl two days later. In a statement to police, Mrs. Schneider said that she woke to find a dark figure standing above her when she was attacked but she was unable to give a description as it had been dark and it happened so fast. As in the other attacks, no valuables were taken from the home and a mere $7 had been removed from Mr. Schneider's wallet. An arrest was made, but the man was almost immediately released as there was no evidence connecting him to the attack. The sixth victim was Joseph Romano. Mr. Romano was an older man who lived with two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. Five days after the attack on Mrs. Schneider, on August 10th, the axeman chiseled away the bottom panel of the back door and snuck into the house. The girls heard a commotion coming from their uncle's room and ran to his aid. As they rushed in, they saw the intruder fleeing. The girls found their uncle bleeding from two wounds on his head. The police were called, as was in an ambulance. Mr. Romano, a proud man, walked to the ambulance himself, insisting he would be fine. He died two days later of his injuries. In the backyard, police found a bloody axe that had been used in the assault. The girls gave a description of the attacker as a dark-skinned, heavy-set man. He was described as wearing a dark suit and a slouched hat. As in the other attacks, no items were stolen from the home. It was this attack that ultimately led to the hysteria that swept the city. The police linked the attacks, and newspaper headlines began naming the attacker as the Axeman. Dozens of reports were filed. People became wary of strangers and called the police about strange men lurking in alleyways and axes being discovered in their yards. Retired police detective John D'Antonio made public statements linking the attacks in recent months with the earlier unsolved cases. He cited the many similarities and even described the killer as a man who killed without motive. This only added fuel to the fire of fuel that had spread across New Orleans. The Axeman was quiet for months after that. Then, on the night of March 10, 1919, screams were heard coming from the home of Charles and Rosie Cordomiglia. Orlando Jordan, a grocer from across the street, came running to the sounds of distress. 
When he reached the house, he found Rosie standing in the doorway of her home. She was bleeding from the head and holding her dead two-year-old daughter Mary to her chest. Charles Cordomiglia was unconscious and bleeding on the floor. The couple was rushed to the hospital where they recovered from their injuries. Both of them suffered skull fractures and mourned the loss of their child. Charles was released after two days while Rosie remained in care in and out of consciousness. When she regained her senses, she told police that 69-year-old Orlando Jordan and his 18-year-old son Frank were responsible for the attack. Despite Charles's denial of the truth of his wife's statements, the two men were arrested. Orlando was 69 years old and in poor health at the time of the murder. His son Frank was a stocky 200 pounds and was far too large to squeeze through the small opening that had been chiseled through the back door. Despite the fact that the two men could not have committed the crime and Charles's own vehement denial of his wife's accusations, the father and son were tried for murder and subsequently found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang and his father to life in prison. Charles divorced his wife after the trial, and it was a little more than a year after the trial that Rosie admitted to lying and falsely accusing the two out of spite and jealousy. The Jordans were released and shortly after cleared of all charges. Three days after the attack of the Cordomiglia family, a letter was sent to the local newspapers. The letter demanded that everyone within the city limits of New Orleans play jazz music on the night of Tuesday the 18th. The reason for this is best said in his own words. Now to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is, that some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. That night, though many brave souls dared to defy the order, most of the homes, bars, restaurants, and watering holes of New Orleans opened their windows and played jazz as loud as they could stand. They hid behind the gaiety of the music, using it as a shield against the evil that had threatened them. The axeman was seemingly appeased, and the night passed without attack. The city was able to breathe a collective sigh of relief, though the peace would be short-lived. On August 10, 1919, Steve Boca, an Italian grocer, woke to find a dark figure standing over his bed. He was struck in the head with an axe. He woke from unconsciousness later in the night and ran into the street looking for the intruder. It was only then, standing in the night air, that he realized he'd been struck and was bleeding from the head. Boca ran to the house of a neighbor, Frank Genus, where he passed out again on the doorstep. Again, the intruder had chiseled the bottom panel away from the door, used an axe that was found in or around the home, and left all the valuables untouched. Though Boca did recover from his injuries, he was unable to recall the details of his attack or attacker. One month later, on September 3, 1919, Sarah Lawman was attacked. 
the 19-year-old young woman lived alone. She was discovered by neighbors lying unconscious on her bed. She had suffered severe head trauma and was missing teeth. It was determined that she was attacked by an intruder who had snuck in through the window and hit her with a blunt object and an axe. The bloody axe was found lying on the front lawn of the building. Though she would recover from her injuries, Loman was also unable to recall the details of her attack. The final Axeman victim was Mike Pepitone. He was attacked on the night of October 27, 1919. The man slept in a bedroom separate from his wife and was alone in the room when the attack occurred. Mrs. Pepitone was woken by a noise. When she came into the room, she saw a large man fleeing the scene carrying an axe. Her husband had been struck in the head and was covered in blood. There was blood splatter all over the room, including a painting of the Virgin Mary that hung on the wall. The new widow and mother of six was grief-stricken and in shock when the police came. She was unable to describe a distinguishable feature of her husband's killer. Mike Pepitone was the last of twelve known victims, though there are suspected of at least fifteen, maybe more. No arrests were made after this final victim fell to the Axeman, and the case has remained unsolved to this day. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode about the Axeman of New Orleans. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, and feel free to leave a comment as it helps others find us more easily. Help spread the word by liking us on Facebook or following on Twitter and Tumblr. Also, I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you about our new Patreon page. For those of you who haven't heard of it, Patreon is a crowdfunding site that helps independent artists, musicians, writers, YouTube artists, and podcasters like me. The primary difference between Patreon and other crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter is that contributors, or patrons, donate small amounts on subscription basis rather than a single larger donation. Patrons get perks, too like special thanks on the websites and handwritten ransom notes and so on. So I encourage you to check us out on Patreon. And if you can, donate. It really helps. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or an idea for a podcast, send us a message at info at brutalends.com. Until next time.